Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you forgive us our sins as you are faithful and just to do so. As often as we ask for it, you extend to us your grace. And if it wasn't for your mercy, none of us would be saved. We thank you for the salvation that Jesus has brought to us through his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you for the Hebrew people that you chose them and through them came Jesus, our Messiah. We know that you have a distinct and exact plan. Help us, Lord, to make that plan our plan, that we are waiting for you, that we understand what your will for us is. And as we continue to go through the book of Hebrews, we ask that you'd bless your word, that you would fill us up with it, that you would use it to change us, to be those disciples that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. Okay, so we're currently in the book of Hebrews, and I just left off with Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. And in that particular passage, it has been misunderstood for ages. And I'm just going to pick it up from there, even though we left off, I think it was in verse 12 last time. I'm just going to go for some background here. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. And what's being referred to here, as I said last week, it's not that somebody can have salvation and lose salvation. That's not what this was meant to communicate. It was talking to the Jew, the Hebrew specifically, the Hebrew who comes from Abraham, who had the covenant that Moses brought, the Mosaic covenant, and they were in the sacrificial system. They had gone to the sacrifice of Christ. They understood what that was. And then there were those who wanted to go back to the sacrificial system set up under Moses. And the author of Hebrews, whom I believe was Paul, was saying, if you do that, there is no sacrifice left for sin because the sins of the Old Testament were atoned for by these animals, by these critters that they would sacrifice. But it never took away the sin. It only covered the sin. So if you go from the perfect, which is Jesus Christ, back to the imperfect, there is no sacrifice left for sin. If you have tasted what it's be to be like in the Christian community and you go back to the Hebrew community, the Mosaic law, there's no sacrifice left for sin. And so that's what he's talking about. And remember, we have to keep in mind, keep in view, he's talking to the Hebrews. I'm going to talk a minute about the difference between the Hebrews and the Israelites and the Jews. You know, they're not all the same. We believe them to be the same. Technically, they're not. But for us today, they're interchangeable. But we'll go on with that. Let's skip to verse 9 here. It says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. And his people are the Jews that he's referring to here. He wants each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. In other words, what he's saying is continue to walk in the faith, continue to worship Jesus, to continue to be in the fellowships of the fellowship of the saints, continue to use your gift at every opportunity. He's saying, continue in this or use the same diligence in order to make your hope sure. If you are not operating in that realm, 
pretty soon, pretty soon you start to go, well, am I really saved? I don't know. I'm not giving it my all. You know, I'm not diving into it with everything that I have. And that's what the author is saying here. Just do it with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Verse 12, we do not want you to become lazy. Now, you do this in your own mind. If you looked at the church, and I'm talking about the church universal, how many are actually doing the work and how many are being lazy? I mean, if you had to give it a percentage, would you say 50% are doing the work and 50% are being lazy? I would put it lower. Uh, It has always been an adage of several pastors that 20% do all the work and 80% are lazy. And this is an encouragement to us. It's not a condemnation. It's, it's an encouragement. It's like, come on. I don't want you to be lazy is what he's saying. Come on. Don't be lazy. Just get with the program, man. We have eternity in store here. How long's your life? It's a whisper. It's a breath. It's a speck in the, all of eternity. We are here for nothing. And that means everything. If we don't have Christ during that time, the rest of eternity is without him. And it's just a speck of time. And so he's encouraging the Jews here to not be lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And he will go in Hebrews chapter 11 and talk about those people who were very patient and they inherited what was promised. Going on here, to buttress his case about the promise that he has given to the Hebrew people, He uses Abraham. And in verse 13, it says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now, I just need to take a side note here. In the men's group, we had a question about taking oaths. Like, if you go to a court of law, you take an oath. And here's God taking an oath. What's the deal with that? If God can take an oath, can I take an oath? Well, see, the oath that God condemned the people for, the Jews at the time for taking, is they wanted to buttress what their word was because they weren't really trusted. So they would appeal to God or they would appeal to the temple or they'd appeal to the altar or they'd appeal to the sacrifice in the altar to try to give credence, veracity to what they were saying, truthfulness. And he's saying, Stop doing that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Stop taking these oaths. I swear by, you know, and you ever see, and I'm going to use this as a form of instruction. When you're growing up, a common phrase when I was growing up is somebody would say, well, I swear to God, right? To, to establish what they were saying. And that means I should not trust your word very much because you need to swear to a higher authority and God condemns that. He says, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. But if God swears by himself, because there's no one greater to swear by, you can trust it is going to take place because he can swear by himself. We can't swear by him, but he can swear by himself. That is God's privilege, right? And so I want to make sure that we understand that as we go along. So he, he refers to Abraham. And he gave him a promise, and he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Now, Abraham was 75 years old when this promise was made in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. He said, you're going to have many kids. 
It's going to be just wonderful. You're going to have children, and there are going to be so many children. If you could count the stars of the sky, you could count your children. If you can count the sands on the seashore, you can count your children. Seventy-five years old. If God came to you and said, 75, you're going to have a kid. You'd say, oh, please, Lord, no. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And he's going, oh, God, you know, 75. ah." And, And, of course, we know Sarah... She laughed. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine a woman going up to a woman 75 years old? You can have a child. What would she do? <laughs> she would just start busting a gut, right? Oh, you're silly. It isn't going to happen. I'm not going to have any kind of kid. So this is how old they are. You know, and Abraham, for all intents and purposes, was dead. How long did he wait? 25 years. He waited 25. You're 75 years old, and you're going to have a child at 100 Yeah, a hundred years old, I'm going to have a kid? You've got to be kidding me, right? No pun intended. And I just could see how Abraham would be in complete disbelief at first. And, okay, God said it. I'll believe it. And what happened? Of course, first there was Ishmael, and then there was Isaac. And Ishmael, he was told, not, that's not the one. Oy vey, I have to wait longer to have another one, you know. And so he has another one later on. And it's Isaac. And he was old. He was very old. And Sarah at that time, you know, she was still barren. And God turned it around. So Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Genesis chapter 21, verse 5. And he uses him as an example of a promise and an oath that was made. And so to the Hebrew, if the Hebrew understands that God made a promise to Abraham, he's going to make a promise to the modern day Hebrew. The same promise stands. And so he says, use Abraham as an example of God keeping his word. And so they go, okay, now verse 16 Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which is it impossible for God to lie, and the two things are the promise and the oath that were given, we who have fled or left the sacrificial system of Judaism to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. So let me kind of put that in a nutshell again. God made a promise to Abraham. He, he already, we already went through that. And he said, men make an oath, but God makes an oath and he is more sure. So you can trust that God has made this change. Jesus is our hope. He's the one that goes into the holy of holies, the, the holy place there, and he offers his own blood. And you can trust that what God has said and what God has done is going to happen just like it did with Abraham. Even though you have left this sacrificial system, you can have assurance. Verse 19 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we'll be getting into Melchizedek. So the encouragement thus far has been, you are a Hebrew 
and you were raised up under Moses and you have this sacrificial system and it's your way of reaching out to God, but it can't forgive your sins. It can only atone from your, for your sins. And so don't go back to that because Jesus is better. His sacrifice is better. And God said so with the promise and with an oath to Abraham. You can trust that. And he said so with a promise, with a sacrifice, with an oath that you will be saved if you maintain the faith, if you remain, if you persevere. If you don't persevere, there's no promise to be had. If you go back, there's no promise to be had. It's like the person of the world. You know, for us in the world, if you went to somebody who was an unbeliever and you said, so how are you going to get to heaven? You know, there's only two ways to respond to that. One way is, I can't except by the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in him. The other way is, Something referring to the good works. I'm a good person. I've tried to do good things. And so somebody of the world is going to be like the Jews of old who thought by doing the works, they would attain heaven. They would attain to being in the presence of God. But God says, no, that's not the way. Just as a Jew wouldn't go back to the sacrificial system, the world is not supposed to go back, or excuse me, the Christian is not supposed to go back to the world and act like that's going to be meritorious for us to have these works that God's going to look at and say, look at you, you deserve to get to heaven. None of us deserve to get there. And it's only by faith. So that's what's being spelled out here. And that's the application of this passage. We want to make sure we're not working to get to heaven, that we're resting. Remember Hebrews chapter 4, that we're resting in Christ. We've entered into our rest, and we're not striving for that. Now, going on with the priesthood of Melchizedek and Aaron, or the Levites here, there are four ways that rabbis used to interpret the scriptures. The first one was literal, which is do not steal. What does that mean? Do not steal. It's pretty straightforward. It's delivered in what is known as a narrative form, the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. What does that mean? Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. What is that? Do not lie. All of those things that are there, that's a literal interpretation of what Scripture says. And the rabbis would do that. Then there's the implied. Uh, For instance, what if you borrowed a tool perpetually? What is that? That's stealing, right? Well, so if your neighbor has something you want to use and you borrow it, oh, yeah, I forgot to give that back to him like a year and a half ago. Well, it's for all intents and purposes, it's implied that you're stealing. That's what it is, no matter how you want to rephrase it. And so the rabbis would say, you're stealing. You need to give it back, you know, and so give back what is not yours. So there's all kinds of implications from reading the scripture that we can understand. You just want to make sure you're not going too far off out on a limb, right? Uh, and to, to do that, for instance, uh, in 1 Timothy and 1 Peter, it talks about women, how they should dress. And not with braided hair, not with gold, not ostentatiously. Remember in uh, the 60s, what was the favorite hairstyle in the 60s? <laughs> I don't even have to say it, right? The thing was just monster. It was way up there. Well, imagine if they did that back then and they laced gold in it and they had braids and everything else. Now, if a woman wants to do that on her wedding, 
You have at it, sweetheart. You just braid that hair up however you want to do it. It's wonderful. It's your day. But if she did that every single day and she had this gold and, you know, she used the foundation with a putty knife and, and she was, you know, however you want to look at it, it's, that's not where the beauty comes from. The beauty comes from the inside, right? It's one thing if you're in theater. It's, it's another if you're just living your daily life and, and those can be misinterpreted. And so some Christians will go way to the nth degree and they will say, you may wear no makeup. You must cover your head when you enter the church and the sleeves of your dress must go down to the wrists and no ankles may show. So your dress needs to be down to your boots. And they impose this, they impose this law on the women, how they should dress. And women are not allowed to speak. You know, they need to be seen and not heard. That, and that's going way on. That's where you take the implication in a wrong direction. Scripture has never taught those things. And so we want to make sure we're not doing that. And there can be some error in that. But there's also the reasonable implied teaching from the scripture. So the rabbis, they would take the literal, they would take the implied. And then that after much understanding study and consideration, you could draw conclusions. For instance, it doesn't say that thieves will be judged, quote unquote, but will they be judged? Yes, they will. And that would come under the understanding of what sin is. Now, we know it's thou shalt not steal, but it doesn't specifically that I know of, and I I could be an error. That's been known to happen at least once or twice. And, And so this idea that there are thieves that will be judged, it doesn't specifically say that, that I know of. And you can draw that conclusion. So with understanding and study and consideration, you can draw conclusions about how to interpret scripture. And then there's the fourth way, which is allegory or metaphor, where you are similitude. You look at it and you go, okay, I understand what they're saying. Now, how do you apply that? For instance, um, Jesus is a rock. Is Jesus a rock? Star, maybe. But is he a rock? No, he's not a rock. But if you say Jesus is our rock, that's metaphor. And so you're looking at the scripture in a way where you understand this inanimate object is supposed to speak about who Christ is. That's how you interpret Melchizedek. Melchizedek is supposed to be an allegory or a metaphor of who Christ is. Now, there is the possibility that Melchizedek was actually Jesus Christ. And some people will say, he was. Okay, he was. We'll find out when we get to heaven. We know that he's after that order, but Melchizedek is an unusual character in the Old Testament. There's much to be gleaned from looking at him. And in verse 1 of chapter 7, it talks about Melchizedek. It says, this Melchizedek, and by the way, the reason we're looking at Melchizedek is because Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And specifically for the Jew, if you said priest, they would say a priest in the order of Levi or the priest in the order of Aaron. But the writer of Hebrews says, no, Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And there's a reason he's saying that, or Melchizedek, however you want to pronounce it. It says, this Melchizedek, 
was king of Salem, which Salem means peace, and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. So when it you have the word like or as, that means it's a simile or similitude that's being used here. And so he is saying here, without beginning of days or the end of life, like the son of God, and this would lend credence to the idea that he is not Jesus Christ. Even though there's evidence that some would suggest he could be Jesus, an Old Testament, uh, actually a Christophany of Jesus, but we'll just leave that for another day. So who was Melchizedek? He was superior in the order of the priests of the Jews. Now, how do we know this? Before the priesthood was set up in the Old Testament, the position of the priest was occupied by the head of the household or the clan. For instance, Abraham was an altar builder. He interceded to God for his family. He sacrificed for his family. And so as these clans would grow, the patriarch, the one who was the oldest, became the arbiter of truth and justice. If there were any questions, everybody would go to the patriarch. They would go to Abraham. Later it fell to Isaac. Later it fell to Jacob. And they were the patriarchs. They were the priests. They were the ones who interceded. That's how it worked before the priesthood was set up. In today's lingo, that might be the mayor. You know, you go to the mayor. Well, what's the mayor say about this civil thing that's here? And and that's kind of how it would work in these little cities. And so you would have the person of the head of the family being in the place of one who would be a king or a mayor or a priest. He was the final vote, so to speak. In Genesis chapter 14, after Lot had moved to Sodom, and he was captured there, and they took everything to the north. I think it was a couple hundred miles to the north, certainly more than 100 miles. And there was the Cato de Leomer, one of the kings allied with him, uh, and then the king of Sodom came out to meet uh, Abraham and fight against these kings to the north. I think there were, there were five kings all together and Abraham pursued him and brought back everything. And when he brought back everything, he passed back through Jerusalem. And as he passed back through Jerusalem, he met Melchizedek. Melchizedek came out. Do you know what Melchizedek brought to him when he came out? There were two things he brought to Abraham. Bread and wine. You look at that, you go, wow, I know somebody else who brought out bread and wine that was jesus christ and it's meant to do that it's meant to when jesus does it it's meant to take us back to melchizedek and when we look at melchizedek it's meant to bring us forward to jesus god intended that connection to be made just like the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world jesus christ the sacrificial lamb on passover it was meant to have that connection so we'd look at it and say oh god set this up No. Yeah, he set this up. And so that's why God wants us to look at it that way. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. And Salem is ancient Jerusalem. Who is Jesus the king of? Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. That is his place. And the new city, Jerusalem, is going to come down. So see, again, there's connection here. He brought out the bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Who else is 
priest of God Most High. Jesus Christ is the priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, to bring this all together here, and by the way, also in Scripture, in Psalm 110, verse 1, through verse 4. In verse 4 it says, The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are priests forever in the order of Melchizedek. That is a prophecy given about Jesus Christ when he comes that he would be in fact in the order of Melchizedek and not from the Levitical priesthood. And I'm sure the author, if not in the letter, if there was some kind of communication after that, he would have reinforced that and he encourages the Hebrews, think about this. I mean, think about the connection that's going on here. And so just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. And that's in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 3. So God says, think about it. Okay, so we're going to think about it. How great was Melchizedek? He was the prince of Salem, prince of peace. Isaiah chapter 9, 6 says, for us, to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace melchizedek was prince of peace jesus is prince of peace he was king of righteousness now this is jehovah to if you're familiar with god of righteousness also jehovah jireh is the god who provides he will provide that's what abraham called god and also jesus is the lord our righteousness that connection is made so those are two things Thirdly, he's without father or mother. God had no earthly father or mother. The priest Melchizedek is said to us to have no godly father or mother. Now, is that true? Is that not true? We don't know. We'll find out when we get there. There's a good theological argument on both sides of that. And that's what would lend people to believe. No, he is Jesus. He doesn't have a father or mother type thing. He's always existed. And that's what it's meant to point to. That he has been eternal. And some people would object and say, well, he had Mary. Mary was his mother. He has a mother, so he's not. Well, no, Jesus, he has always existed. Just because Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean he didn't exist before that. He did exist before that. Fourthly, he's without genealogy. God has no genealogy. Who's God's father? There isn't one. Sorry. And without beginning or end of days, God is eternal. In John chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. This is Jesus talking here to the Pharisees and Sadducees. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And, you know, back then those were fighting words. And they wanted to pick up stones to stone him because he's saying, I am, I am the God of the burning bush is what he's saying. And they knew it. I'm sure they probably just ripped their clothes at that time, threw off their little hats and threw up dirt in the air. And they probably got some stones. There was just a riotous time that they wanted to have and they wanted to take him out. Antifa had nothing on these guys. These guys were just going to wreak mayhem and cause violence. 
And so Jesus fits the description of Melchizedek and Melchizedek fits the description of Jesus. And the sixth point here, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. It implies perpetuity. It's an attribute of God, again, that he is eternal. So those things are what we're supposed to consider about Melchizedek. Now, I I want you to think about this a minute. So you have Abraham. He's the father of which? The Israelites, the Jews, or the Hebrews? Abraham comes from the line of Shem. And he was called, I think it was in Genesis chapter 14, he was called a Hebrew. He was not called a Jew. And he was not called an Israelite. Abraham was a Hebrew. Get the connection why the book is named Hebrews? He was a Hebrew, and God even chose the title of the book. He wanted people to reference back to the Hebrews and not the Jews. And you might say, well, why? But we understand the Jews and the Israelites and the Hebrews all to be one. Well, technically they're not, even though we use them as one. And if we say, you know, the Jews, we're talking about the Hebrews. And if we talk about the Israelites, we're talking about the Jews. And it just goes round and round. But technically, it's not true. Abraham was a Hebrew. Then he gave birth, or his wife gave birth, to Isaac. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob. What was Jacob's name changed to? Israel. Therefore, the sons of Israel became the Israelites. They weren't the Jacobites. They were the Israelites. So the Israelites didn't start until after Jacob. So where did the Jews come from? Yeah, had, you know, the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Well, yes, that's true. He is the king of the Jews. When Rehoboam, the son of Solomon... When he didn't listen to the counsel of the elders under his father Solomon when he was reigning and after he died, they told him, you know, lessen their taxes and they'll give their support to you. And he goes, okay, I'll consider this in three days. And he went to talk to his own youngins, you know, his peers. They say, no, you know, if something was bad under Solomon, we're going to make it even worse. That's what you ought to do, Rehoboam. And he goes, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So he listened to the young guys. As a result of that, and this was God's judgment, as a result of that, ten kingdoms went to the north called Israel. Two kingdoms were to the south, made up of only two tribes. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. One of the tribes was Benjamin, which was the smallest of the tribes, and the other tribe was Judah. Judah. Jews. That's where the Jews came from. In the land of Judea, they were called Jews. But we would say northern kingdom is the Israelites. The southern kingdom is the Jews. Well, for us, they're all Jews. Right? And we would even go back and say, Abraham was the Jew, a Jew, right? Well, no, he really wasn't. He was a Hebrew, is who he was. And so again, hence the title of the book, Hebrews. Everyone that comes from the lineage of Abraham is a Hebrew. You have the subsets, the Israelites second, which also contain the Jews, and then third, you have the Jews. But if you use the Jews to refer to the sons of Abraham, everybody knows what you're talking about. It's just a little 
just a little notch in the history and understanding of what's there, but it's necessary for this reason. You go back and Hebrew had a great grandson, or excuse the Hebrew, Abraham had a great grandson, and his name was Levi. Now, in the order of things, who was greater, Levi or Abraham? Abraham is greater. The patriarch was always greater than the child or the grandchild or the descendants. Remember, Jesus had an argument with the Pharisees. And he said, you know, why does uh, King David call the Messiah Lord when the son, the Messiah, comes from David? And the Jews could not answer. Because David was the father of the Messiah. Therefore, the Messiah should be subservient to David, and he's not. David calls him Lord. How is that possible unless he's God? You see, I mean, it's just woven in there, and you just go, whoa, God, you're like, cool. It's a tapestry. It's just kind of woven all together. So Levi would have been subservient to Abraham, right? Abraham thought somebody was greater than him. Who was that? Melchizedek. You see how it just goes back and you go, oh. So if Jesus is like Melchizedek, Abraham would honor Melchizedek. Abraham would honor Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest. He is better than the Levitical priesthood. And you Jews should understand that. You see how that all just like weaves together and you go, wow. So the Jews got this understanding from the scripture. Now us, we, we are not Jews. Well, technically I am. I have some. Uh, Jewish blood in me and I, I have so much Jewish blood I could have been in the concentration camps but I I, I don't look at that I never had a bar mitzvah you know I, I never went to Israel as a Jewish boy you know anything like that but it, it's this idea that we are we are not Jews you know and relating to this very much we we don't really relate to it okay I get the Jews I get the Abraham I get the Melchizedek things so what It's because God revealed himself through the Hebrew people and we want to know the origins of the Messiah, where he came from and why he came. We want to carry this with us so we understand who our Messiah is. It's kind of like when you're married. Do you think you should get to know your spouse? Maybe a little, right? Maybe a whole lot. Well, the same thing with our Messiah, Jesus. He is our bridegroom. Should we get to know him? It's like you ask your spouse when you're dating them. So where'd you go to school? Where'd you grow up? Oh, was your father in the military? Did you move around? Did you stay put in one place? What's your favorite food? You know, you ask all of these different questions. Well, the same thing applies to us. When we look at Jesus, he is this high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Oh, I understand who he is. He's my bridegroom. You know, we're going to be attached to him for all of eternity. So we need to get to know him. And that's the purpose of it. And it went through the Hebrews. He wrote to the Hebrews, but it is for us as well. Now, the law requires, verse 5, the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descendants from Abraham. In other words, they're equal. This man, however, did not trace his descendants from Levi, and he's talking about Melchizedek, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without a doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. The implication was that this man was greater 
than Abraham. In one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. And so that's another connection there. Melchizedek is declared to be a priest forever, you know, and Jesus is a priest forever, the connection that's drawn there. Verse 9 says, one might even say that Levi who collects a tenth paid the tenth through Abraham. So the Levites were paying to the greater through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So you see what's trying to be communicated to the Jews here? It's the whole idea that Jesus is greater than any priest, than any person, including Abraham. You know, Abraham is probably the most widely known person in the world today. If there is one person that you thought would be most popular, it's not Putin, it's not Trump, it's not Merkel, it's not whoever else you want to name as far as the world is concerned. But if you say the name of Abraham, who knows Abraham? All the Christians, all the Jews, all the Arabs. How many people is that? Billions and billions is how many people that is. And so when Abraham's name comes up, people listen throughout the world because they know they're talking about a person who is significant in the eyes of God. So Melchizedek, we see that he is this priest. Now, verse 11 says, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there was a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom things, these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe was ever, has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And when we have said, or what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to the ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. So Jesus is completely different than this Levitical priesthood. And remember, he's writing to the Jews that placed everything on this priesthood. And by the way, we are now part of a priesthood. Do you know which priesthood we are after? We are after the priesthood of Melchizedek. We are not after priesthood of Levi. And you say, well, wait a second. Where does it say? Well, Jesus is after the lineage of Melchizedek, the priesthood. And we are a kingdom of priests unto the Lord our God, which is Jesus Christ. And he is of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And we are like him. That's where the implied interpretation of scripture comes through first peter chapter 2 verse 5 says you also like living stones are built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through christ remember it's spiritual sacrifice nobody brings their little lamb in here capuchis have a goat we're not going to bring the goat and we're not going to sacrifice the goat in here and pour its blood over the you know, somewhere up here. We're not going to do that. That's not who we are. We offer spiritual sacrifices. What is our spiritual sacrifice? Your body. Wait a second. I have to offer my... And remember, you have to make this connection again. What is giving your body as a spiritual sacrifice? Dying. 
What do you mean dying? Literally? Well, literally you're going to die one day. But no, it's your will, your desires, what you want. You crucify it all. You put it on the altar. You burn it up. Say, goodbye, life. And you let it just go up and toast. It's going to become flames. And so whenever any of us say, no, God, I don't want to do that. Oh, you're removing the sacrifice. You're taking the nails out of the arm and go, wake up, get, get up. And you want the dead man or the dead woman to rise up and take control when Christ says, oh, no, put that guy back down there. Let's nail those nails back into those arms and make sure you're not trying to take over your own life again. What is wrong with you? Anyhow, you know, when you look at this stuff in the eyes that God has, we're supposed to die. This is our living sacrifice. And if you don't, you're not part of the holy priesthood. That's part of being a believer. You're not a disciple. So God wants us to be a disciple. Take our desires and think of your desires right now. What do you want? Is it a car? Is it a house? Is it a position? Is it money? Is it favor? Is it power? Crucify it all. You get nothing, right? Because now you have new desires, which are Christ's desires. And that's what you get. But the heart of mankind, humankind, is I don't want his desires. I want what I want when I want it. And you see, we're to be this holy priesthood. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you were a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are a royal priesthood. We're a bunch of priests. That's a good name that's not a bad name you're a bunch of priests yeah we're a bunch of priests we get to be part of the lineage of jesus christ and the priesthood after melchizedek and we get to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice and we get to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light and we do that when we sing worship songs we declare the praises of god right unless you're i'm not singing today i don't feel like it i don't like this song it's not something you get to choose to do. Our will is supposed to be the will of God. His will for us is that we sing, but I can't sing. It's okay. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord then. You know, just let it ring out. It's, this stuff is, you know, you look at Hebrews, you go, so boring. It's not boring. This stuff is exciting. Let's go on. Verse 17, for it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And I just quoted you earlier, Psalm 110, where it says that. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing an office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely. Completely is uttermost it it is a superlative here those who come to god through him because he always lives to intercede for them such a high priest meets our needs one who is holy blameless pure set apart from sinners exalted above the heavens unlike the other priests 
He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. So we know that Aaron offered an offering for his own sin in the book of Leviticus chapter 16. It talks about that verses 11 through 17. But Jesus didn't have to do that. It was one sacrifice for all times. Verse 28. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. And so that's who Jesus is. Jesus is someone who is better than the priesthood through the Levites. The Aaronic priesthood, it goes through the Levites because Aaron was a priest. Moses was a priest. He came from the priesthood, that lineage of the, the priest in that family line. But Jesus was outside of that. And so he's appealing to the Hebrews. Look, this is who Jesus is, greater than anything you have ever known up to this time in the Mosaic law. The sacrificial system is to be left behind and the high priesthood that is to be done away with the levitical priesthood and there is something new and god is going to do a new work of which we who believe are a part you are a kingdom of priests so i would encourage you intercede offer your body as a living sacrifice just as aaron would offer sacrifices on the altar we are to offer ourselves as sacrifice where we do not throw our bodies on the altar but we bow our knees to Christ. This is the whole reason the book of Hebrews was written to show us the superiority of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Hebrews here and how they have been faithful to follow this sacrificial system in the vein of the Old Testament. For now they are being taught a new way, all Jews throughout all time from Jesus till now. And Father, we understand for ourselves that there is no other way. The Jews were told there is no other way. There's no other sacrifice. There's no other person which will enable us to get to heaven. And so, Father, help us to trust fully. Help us to die to ourselves. Help us to live for you. Help us to listen to your voice and know your word and be filled with the Spirit and sing your praises. And may this be the outcome of a life that has been lived for you. Until we see you or till we pass from this place, Lord, may you fulfill this in us. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.